Hey everyone, welcome to the 38th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Jermaine Jenkins. Jermaine spent three years as the hitting partner for Venus Williams and went on to coach Naomi Osaka in 2019. He currently serves as a USTA national women's coach and works with many of the top U.S. juniors and transitioning pros. On today's episode, we discuss what he learned from Venus Williams, how to work on two areas of focus in a tournament, and his best advice for the 4-0 player. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Jermaine, welcome to the pod. Hey, thanks for having me, Jonathan. First thing I kind of want to get into, you know, I've known you for a long time. There, there's been a good Jenkins in every age group since I was a junior. <laughs> so we're from the same section. So, you know, as always me looking up to your older brother, Jackie, uh, you and I, I think are about the same year, maybe one year off. You have the younger brother, Jarmir, and you guys, there's probably more Jenkins that I'm not even aware of that also can pl- play great tennis. But what do you think it was? in your upbringing where all of your tennis siblings kind of, you all had success. You were an all American. Jarmir won a title at UVA. Jackie went on to play at Northwestern. Was there a coaching you know, system? Was it your upbringing with your family? Why do you think you all had such great success? Yeah, I think that all played into it. You know, just the core values with the family. I mean, we're a highly competitive family. <laughs> and so, I mean, honestly, I played, you know, other sports coming up and I always followed Jackie's footsteps. He actually, he played basketball in high school and he went on to play tennis, but I would, I saw what tennis did for him and, you know, just the travel, the exposure. He got a chance to see the world at such a young age and, I remember all of the like UPS boxes pulling up when he was sponsored by like name brands. And I was like, man, I want some of that. And so he pretty much uh, pioneered and like led the way for us. And for me, I really got serious with tennis around the age of 14. I played on a travel baseball and basketball team. And I really, the bar was set pretty high with Jackie. And, and also um, just in my family, we had a sense of hunger and being, the first to go to college in my family. So um, Jackie, Jameer, and I. And so, you know, we wanted to definitely set a good example for, you know, our brothers and our cousins and um, other family members to follow. 14 is generally considered a little bit late to kind of take it on full time. And there's lots of people out there who get into tennis later in their lives or even juniors getting later. Do you think that's an advantage or a disadvantage? Does it are you are you fresher and, and more ready to learn than some people who maybe have been playing since age five, or is it more difficult to pick up the skill? What what do you think about that age to start? Okay, I think there's pros and cons. You know, like for me, the advantage was I was still hungry, and it carried over into my coaching career or hitting partner career because you know I didn't make it at the level of U.S. Open and playing in these venues, but I still had a burning desire to learn and. And, you know, want to coach at the highest level. And so I found myself having an opportunity, you know, be the hidden partner for Venus for three or four years and go on to, you know, coach other, you know, pro players. So I still have that burning desire. Um, now, I would say if you're 14 and maybe you're a giant like you and I remember Rajiv Ram, you guys were a lot taller, you know, bigger sirs. And, you know, maybe it wouldn't hurt to start late because, you know, that maybe that attribute can make up for that. But um, I do think that 14 is a late start, generally speaking. Um, I do agree with that. 
you mentioned uh, being the hitting partner for Venus Williams. How how did you get into that? You know, I know you you were a great player at Clemson and you kind of went into coaching, but how did you get hooked up with Venus early on? Honestly, I had an opportunity um, to move to Florida to start in the academy um, with, I think, Christopher Williams, Tim Wilkinson, and Andrew Stubbs, I believe, who's from the South Carolina area. So we had a great time there. And then one thing kind of led to the next where I had a buddy where I would um, go down to West Palm and I spent some time down there. And honestly, Venus asked, you know, if I could play tennis. I mean, you know, if I could practice with her the next morning. And I think one thing kind of led to the next. I had one practice with her. Actually, I practiced with Serena first, um, which I was I was able to hit in with her, which kind of calm my nerves so by the time I got a chance to practice with Venus I was pretty settled in and I you know I did a great job and that one thing led to her asking me if you know if I could you know hit with her for two weeks before the U.S. Open and then that led to you know I was there at the U.S. Open with Jameer um, serving as his uh, coach at the time and I think he had lost like qualifying round of at the U.S. Open and I just literally sent the text to Venus and was like, hey, look, I'm here. If I could be of service to you, let me know. And she responded back. And, you know, that's when David Witt called me and was like, hey, Venus, counselor her hidden partner for the week. And I think it was a little salty at first. He was like, hey, you know, Venus, counselor her hidden partner. And um, you're in. We're going to, you know, he gave me the time of the practice. But then, you know, Dave and I really hit it off and literally spent three or four years traveling the world together and I learned so much from him as well and uh you know we're good buddies now but yeah it was literally one practice led to kind of a you know a job (laughs) so I want to go back there you said you were nervous to hit with Venus but somehow you weren't nervous to hit with Serena and that's what Serena was like your warm-up for Venus is that what you're telling no so what happened was okay I think Venus was meeting with her financial advisor and I was sitting and I was sitting down in a chair watching Serena practice and I remember her looking in my direction until this day I I can't believe she was looking at me but she was looking in my direction and she pointed and she's like hey you can you hit and so I'm looking behind me because I'm like clearly she's not talking about me (laughs) and so she's like no you can you hit and I was like of course you know so I hop out and I think we do two-on-ones and it was Robbie Robbie Poole at the time was her hitting partner and we were doing two-on-ones. And so experiencing that, you know, where, I mean, I just remember she was so freaking strong. And, and even on two-on-ones doing a baseline drill with her, I mean, she was, it was crazy because I had just come from hitting with a lot of juniors. And so now you're hitting with, you know, Serena Williams. And so that was a pretty cool experience. And that kind of took the edge off having that experience to now, you know, going into a practice with Venus. And so, Yeah. That that makes sense because I, I was thinking to myself, man, I would have been pretty nervous for both those hits. <laughs> oh no, I was, I was. Trust me, I was. But I mean, <laughs> I, I think you know, after you hit with Serena, you know, and have a practice with her for you know, it was a thirty minute hit. I think, I think I was pretty settled in after that. So you spent three years as her, as Venus's hitting partner. What is something that you took away from your time specifically that you learned from her being such a great champion? How she went about things. What did you pick up from Venus? Wow, so many things. I think one is just the mentality of what it means to truly be a professional, you know, no matter what's going on um, in your personal life. I mean, and that, that family, they, they're in multiple projects at once. And I just remember that, 
you know, one thing that I took for her is there's certain things that are non-negotiables, you know, like for Venus, no matter where she is, you know, she's going to work on the serve, she's going to work on her returns. And um, I remember traveling with her when she had speaking engagements and other business meetings, but she would always make sure she can get her work in, even if it was four o'clock in the morning sometimes before you catch a flight and go somewhere. And she taught me that like every little bit counts, you know, every little bit adds up. And then I would say number two was um, the importance of your routine. And she had a set routine where, you know, she would practice on things specifically. And and if she was feeling really great about how she was doing her routine, it didn't matter who her opponent was. But, yeah, just so many lessons learned through the lenses of really just watching her, you know. Are you, are you saying routine as in, like, you know, she's got a match at the U.S. Open and she's eating the same time before, doing the same type of warm-up? Is, is that kind of what you're referring to with a routine? Yeah, that and then just more specifically, like, you know, she doesn't deviate. Um, she's flexible in, you know, how she trains and, and maybe some of the game plans and practice plans. But I think her normal practice plan, you know, pretty much stayed the same and, like, she practiced on the same things. For instance... She would do ground strokes with a warm up for like 10 or 15 minutes. And a lot of the times she would serve maybe 20 minutes into practice where, you know, she has pretty good stamina, pretty good energy. And she wanted to make sure that she was working on her serve majority of the times when, you know, not, you know, because you see a lot of players, they work on their serves towards the end of practice. And so that was one thing that she made a point to, you know, like the two most important strokes. She would stop like at 20 minutes into practice, work on her serve, work on her returns. You know, that was pretty much the bulk of her big rocks into her game plan. And then the rest was, you know, fillers where, you know, she'll work on maybe some areas of focus at the time. But just the way she went about things is very, um, I would say, intentional and deliberate. Was there anything about her that surprised you about her process, about her game, the mindset that you weren't prepared for? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I hope I have the freedom to say this, but like I, I just I couldn't believe how silly she was <laughs> and like, you know, how fun she was. Here I am, you know, I'm like, man, I can't miss a ball. I'm trying to give her the best practice ever and in the middle of practice. She was just bust out doing a dance or doing a or start singing, you know. And she always had a way of just making you feel comfortable, taking the edge off things, but still going about her work and, you know, getting her work done. So David Witt was her coach, and he's now coaching Jessica Pagula, who's been on the pod and, and I've known forever, and I've gotten to get to know him. You said you kind of had a coaching relationship from those years. What did you learn specifically from him as a coach? I think what I learned from David Witt was less is more. I think he's really smart, and he has a um, – he has a calm demeanor where he puts his players at ease. And a lot of that is you could get complicated and things can get lost. And and I think that he keeps things very simple. And um, he's a player's coach. He's going to coach you to your strengths and what that player's strengths are at the time. Yeah, but really just simple things, you know, it's like no magic. So do you find that hard? I, I know for me to keep it simple and there's a lot of times where I just want to talk so much because I'm like I'm getting paid to coach and then maybe the best thing though is let the player figure it out for themselves is that something you struggled with early on or, or do you just kind of watch him keep it a hundred percent I mean a hundred percent I mean my first three years of coaching I mean I couldn't shut up you know it was like <laughs> I was like I was getting tired of hearing myself talk and then you know I, as you mature 
you learn, you know, you learn things like, hey, let the drill do the teaching, you know, you put the player in a situation, you know, let the situation teach them, you know, and they learn through experience. And you figure out that at the end of the day, you can't play for them. So you have to put them in situations to where they can problem solve. And our goal is to, you know, have our players become better problem solvers, you know, not just at tennis, but it's a, it transfers to life. So you went on from your time with Venus and David, and you ended up working as Naomi Osaka's full-time coach. What was that like? I actually think I saw you in Birmingham, uh, England with her. I don't know if you were there at the time. I, I actually <laughs> yes. went with Jesse for one tournament. I, and I was oh, like, wow. oh my okay. God. I was like, is that your main? I saw you in the lobby of the hotel and you were like walking away. And I'm like, is he coaching Osaka? But what was that like taking on such a huge role like that? Wow. It was scary. You know, it was really scary. Just in all transparency, it, it was my first official coach role, you know, as a coach and a pro player. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, it was a great learning experience as well. So many positives to bring from that. You know, Naomi is like, at the time, like, wow, like her work ethic, most of her confidence comes from her fitness. And so I just remember spending about four hours out of the day working on fitness and maybe like hour and a half of tennis, you know. And so it really taught me, you know, that you really have to find out what makes each player tick because, you know, each player is so different. I think all coaches are, are sick puppies to an extent, but I know that I know when I was a player, I really never blamed a coach for my performance. You know, I was never like, man, I would have won that if my coach was just a little smarter or like he had worked like, why, why hasn't he fixed my <laughs> forehand? I was just like, my forehand sucks. You know, it's not my coach's fault. Like, I just don't know how to hit it. But now that I'm a coach, if my player comes out and chooses some tactics that aren't very smart or doesn't handle a situation, I'm like, this is 100% my fault. And so you always feel <laughs> it that way. Like, do you ever feel that yes. at all? Like, I'm sure there's a ton of pressure with her. But when I'm watching my player, every time they do something that's suboptimal, I'm like, God, that's on me. Like, I got to help them figure that out. I honestly think if you don't feel that way, it's a problem because, I mean, even though we're coaches, we're still competitive, right? You know, we want to put our players out there as the best versions of them. I mean, it kind of goes without said. I, I do think it's a reflection of you, you know. And so I do feel that way to answer your question, 100%, yes. Naomi had a ton of expectations at the time. I think she had already won at least one slam, but she was one of the best players in the world. You're taking on that high-profile role she's got pressure on her shoulders. Was there anything you did as a coach to try to help her deal with pressure or allow her to play more freely in a big match? Yeah, I think um, humor. Um, humor, you know, just, again, I think at the end of the day, you know, no matter what the player is, you know, when the stakes are high, there's already enough going on outside to distract the players, but your job is to put that player at, at ease. I think that's the art of coaching. Not what you say is how you say it, and not what drill you do is how you do the drill, and just those things. But no, um, I, I definitely don't have any magic sauce if that's what you're asking. I think for me at the time, I just tried to put her at ease as much as I can and just try to um, allow her to give her perspective and just see, focus on the bigger picture. From Venus to Naomi, and now you're at the USTA, and you're working with lots of top juniors and kind of young transitioning pros. What are some of the core fundamentals of the USTA player development program, and what are some things that you're trying to work with, you know, these young great players on? 
Yeah, um, and it's it's very refreshing. It's a refreshing space because sometimes, you know, when you tell the girls things, they look at you like, oh, wow, like, I didn't know that exists. <laughs> so, you know, they're a little green, so it's kind of cute in a way. Um, but I would say the main thing is is to give them a foundation. And um, my coaching philosophy is to pretty much give the player a complete game. Because I think with a complete game, at least, you know, you have a chance to become a problem solver or you have more than one tool in the toolbox, you know, like can use the hammer all the time. Right. So just giving the player the ability to use the screwdriver or, or whatever tools um, that helps. So we're, we, like I told you before the show, you have set a record. So either the podcast is getting more popular or you are my most popular guest ever. But you got the most Instagram questions <laughs> of all time. Uh, we're not going to do them all because you got to put your your kid down for the night, but we are going to do a bunch. Um, this one kind of okay. just relates right into what we were talking about. But what is the difference in level between, say, a top U.S. junior and then maybe being a top international junior? And then the follow up question they had was, and what is that next jump from being a top international junior to, say, like a top 100 pro? What are the things that separate those levels? Uh, I think the word that sticks out most to me is exposure. Because, I, I mean, I know you know what it's like traveling at ITF tournaments and you may have 30 minutes to practice and 30 minute court time and there's like still 10 minutes left and then there's someone right next to your court or even on your court during their warm up who's not going to let a minute go by, you know, just that exposure and seeing that there's other people who are doing more with less. And so I think sometimes we get a little bit spoiled in um, the U.S. And not, you know, obviously on the women's side, they're killing it. But just in, just generally speaking, just to make that transition, you have to pass a lot of tests. And when I say, like, you know, mental tests, physical tests, you know, having crowds cheer against you and going, you have to deal with a lot more adversity, I would say, in international tennis. So, yeah, exposure, you know, would be my biggest, um, yeah, that would be my answer. It's almost like a, I felt like this, like you almost become a seasoned competitor. Like you, yes. you go to, you go to Costa Rica and I just went there for a tournament and, you know, the courts are completely slanted. So the net was like probably a foot higher than it was from the baseline and there's altitude and they're using a ball that we've never played with and it rained two days. So you didn't even get to hit on the court and you're playing a different type of player from a different country and you go man, it's not just perfect how it is in my club with great windscreens and the same court. Exactly. You, you kind of learn how to figure it out and you face all these situations. And after you've done it a couple of times, it doesn't scare you anymore. But that's what I saw, at least from going from the U.S. to internationally, was just like you realize there's just a lot of different variables that you usually don't have to deal with. And it makes things very easy when you go back to a comfortable environment. There you go. I think you actually answered the question a lot better than I did. <laughs> Yeah, you definitely, you don't have your Starbucks in the morning for sure. Right, right. Um, okay, so if you're at a big tournament, this person wanted to know uh, how many hours a day would you train at a tournament or is that variable based on the player? But when you're in a big event, what do you think a, tr a good training schedule or warm-up schedule would look like? Um, are we saying a big pro event, big junior event? Uh, well, let's go, let's go junior. Cause mo obviously there aren't a ton of pros listening to this podcast, but yeah, like an amateur event, someone's got a multiple day, you know, a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you go, Hey, how much should you be practicing? A lot of people like to cram for the exam and just be on the court all the time. Some people are saving energy, you know, generally speaking, what do you think a good, good, uh, tournament training schedule would be? 
Yeah, so I think when you want to talk about your fitness plan, so your fitness plan should be based on, you know, what your match time was. You know, like if you played a longer match than, you know, like a three-set grinder, then you probably want to do more of a five to ten minute on the bike, cool down, stretch, take care of the body. But if you played a shorter match, um, maybe you could, you know, we do things, what we call, you know, areas of focus, continuous improvement. So no matter, you know, how long your match was, um, we're going to go out for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. Just, you know, with the juniors, we do a lot of character building. So we're going to work on those 10 to 15 minutes areas of focus. And so we work on those daily um, win or lose a draw. But yeah, your fitness plan, you know, um, has to definitely give you some options and flexibility based on your match time. You know, if you beat someone O and O, then maybe you can go a little bit harder, you know, with your fitness plan that day and, and then, um, just gear up and get ready for that next day. So my general answer is, is situational based on, you know, your match. But then, you know, you may have quote unquote big event that's not the event that you would want to peak at and so maybe you know you use that event as a training block and you know you still do your normal um training program but barring any crazy circumstance you know like a four-hour competitive match you would recommend working you know maybe hitting a few balls after if there's a a continuous area of improvement or just something from that match that didn't feel good okay so it, it, it's so crazy because I, I know I w- I'm working um, with Claire V. And so I know she was dealing with somewhat of an injury or a recurring injury at the time. And so um, we wanted to limit her court time. And so we would I would just say, hey, you know, here's your areas of focus. But let's work on that in, in your doubles, you know, instead of going to the practice court. And so I, I just think it's situational. If you're only playing singles, then it just makes sense. Maybe you go out 15 10 to 15 minutes. If you had a four hour match, then obviously you need to shut it down. And uh, I think you, <laughs> I think you've got enough practice to where you can, uh, you know, sleep on it a little. I don't know the person that asked this next question, but I wish I could meet him because th- their, their question was fairly colorful, but the gist of it was they wanted to know how to deal with a mental meltdown in a match. So when things aren't going well, this person seems to run a little hot and they wanted to know if you had any tips for kind of, getting outside yourself and, and calming yourself down when things aren't going well? Number one, if you're having a meltdown, it's too late. But um, I would say one of the things that I like to do is a little visualization with my players and we kind of, um, you know, kind of do a rehearsal. And then you also, you know, you try to work out as many scenarios as possible. So you want to go in prepared. And I say maybe you, you watch more tennis and study your opponent a little bit better so that, Things don't seem so unfamiliar and you feel some sense of control. So, um, yeah, that would be my answer to that. And then I think when you're in that moment, just go into your towel. You know, like if you watch some of the bigger pros, um, the better pros, you know, they're they're just going to go to their towel. And uh, sometimes you got to put your face over your towel. And, you know, if you have to scream, scream. Um, but, you know, just taking that time to, you know, take a couple of deep breaths um, through your towel and, um you know, by the time you take your, you know, one of maybe your third by your third step, you kind of, you know, reset and you're ready to go. We had Alistair Hyam on the podcast and he was talking about momentum and he was saying, talking about the scoring system. And he said, you know, if you lost the first set and it rained and so you came back the next day to play the second set, you probably would by that time not be upset anymore. You know, you'd be recovered and hey, I'm ready to try again. And the whole challenge is how do I take 
that feeling and shrink it into either a changeover, 90 seconds or 25 seconds? How do I get there emotionally? And so, like you said, I think taking time is huge. I know there, there's times in college where even with an official on the court, I just told myself I'm going to take a time violation warning. Yes. I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to take a minute. And it's like, I don't love it, but Hey, I'm not there yet. And I'm not ready to play a point. And after I took that full minute, it was enough time to calm down and regroup. And I think players rush a lot when they're, when things aren't going well. Yes, I agree. Um, especially if you watch the juniors, you know, and like, you know, it bleeds over into the next point game set. Um, I totally agree a hundred percent. But then there's also, you know, having that awareness to speed things up as well, you know, on the other end when you do have the momentum. Absolutely. So being with Venus and Naomi, you probably were a part of many huge matches. Is there anything specifically that you guys did to get ready for a big match or is it just every single match you treat the same? I would say I would go back to routine. You know, I think both Naomi and Venus, they did a really good job of keeping things as normal as possible. I know Venus, she has, you know, the same green juice that she would have when she's in, you know, Jupiter at her home on a practice on a Saturday morning that she would when she's at the U.S. Open, you know. So I think, yeah, just staying in your routines and keeping things as normal as possible um, and not making a moment bigger than what it is, is really, to me, the key, you know. How how do you do that? Because I I know there's a lot of, I have a lot of of players that I coach and, you know, I don't even remember half the junior tournaments I played in. Like, I, I really don't. My parents told me I, I played a doubles event with someone, and I, it, I feel like they're making it up. And, but at the time, I'm sure it was the biggest thing in the world to me. And I always try to minimize it a little bit and just kind of say, hey, it's a recreational sport. You're enjoying yourself. But the reality is when you're the one in it, it seems huge. So how do you keep that perspective and, and kind of put that match in place? Yeah, so I think in the junior space, like what, what I think helps – is when, you know, a junior who's playing, like, you know, and the girls, like, 16 or 18 nationals, but the week before they just played a pro tournament, you know, and let's just say they got reeled in a 25K or something, and now you're going to play, you know, maybe a 16, you're playing your age group. And so, again, it goes back to the level of exposure. You know, you've been exposed to, you know, some of the better players to now um, maybe the juniors, you know, aren't doing things quite as well. And, you know, sometimes it's not even about the tennis. Maybe it's just about, you know, the professionalism because I I see some players, maybe they warm up like, you know, they show up like maybe 20 minutes before they match or something, you know. But, yeah, I think just having a healthy balance of just competition, you know, where you see what's to come, you know, what level do I need to get to, you know, and then you play your level and maybe that eases a little pressure off and then, you know, and then I think tennis, you know, you need to win a lot as well. You know, it's an individual sport. And I think that, you know, you should be in the junior space, at least uh, where I'm work, um, the transitional space. I think it's important for the juniors to win a lot. And so I think it's a lot easier for the coach to get buy in, you know. And now you see why we're working on the things that we need to work on. And then when you do go play the better players, that's what you're, you're still going to work on your two areas of focus for 10 to 15 minutes after the match. And we're going to keep things as normal as, as possible. You've had several years on tour and you're working with tons of great coaches at the USDA. This person wanted to know the single greatest coaching tip that you've picked up along the way. Someone said something and you've taken that with you and kind of added that into your, you know, standard coaching philosophy. Oh, wow. 
Man. I know they have, they they ask great questions for me. It's like I don't even have to I don't even have to do a job. It's great. What I've learned the most would be what moves the dial? Like how do I make impact? Because yeah, I think in my younger coaching career I would do things that are impressive or man, that's a really cool drill, you know. But then it may not like even you know, like it doesn't resonate with your players. So I think just learning what's impactful to your player. I think there's information and then there's insight. And so, yeah, being intentional and deliberate from what's the main thing that I probably learned just watching some of the, the greater coaches. Are you saying being a information and insight is what you said? You said there's a different difference between giving information and giving insight. So are you saying that even though you might know these drills or these tactics or whatever, that just saying the information to each player, is that what you're saying? Like, doesn't really work. I have to figure out. Right. Exactly. Like, you know, you can kind of overload some players for information. Um, and then, you know, you may tell them one or two things that, you know, that is really insightful or that really that's, you know, applicable to them, you know, to winning or losing that match. So, for me, it's like I gained a lot, a ton of knowledge, but then, you know, once you get all this knowledge, now you have to, you know, relay that to the player. And, you know, we all know personalities are different. You know, some players, you know, they're like, hey, feed me stats, feed me more. And then some players, you know, are a little bit more on like, hey, I want to feel my own way. And I think it's more about me versus my opponent. And so that kind of boils down to the art of coaching, you know knowing your player, the same things that we ask of our players, you know, we have to do those things as coaches, you know, because I know in my space, um, we talk a lot about awareness, you know, because, you know, I think that's the biggest thing that I see in the junior space is just a level of awareness and attention to detail. Have you found this? I I don't know if I, I should be saying this, but like, I think I've had more breakthroughs with players on the little comments or throwaway lines where I'm not even thinking, like if I had a lesson planned and I'm like, oh, I'm, great, I'm going to share this information with them and I'm going to say it this way and I'm all jacked up about it, that has worked way less than they'll, they'll tell me something they remember me saying and I don't even remember it. It might have just been a comment on a changeover. <laughs> but you try so hard to like, you know, just like change their lives with some information. It ends up being the stuff that you're like not even really thinking about. Yes, yes. And I, and I think that's the... Um... That's kind of the nature of, of the beast with coaching, too. You know, like, they are listening. Excuse me. I think that the players are always listening, and even when we don't think they are. And so that's why I think it's so important to – I still remember one of my coaches. I can still hear that voice just on my preparation on my back end. You know, it's like I can still hear his voice. If I rotate it late, you know, he's like six courts down, and he's screaming at me, you know. And so for me, I want to be that, like, coach's voice that sticks with my player forever and yeah you're so right because like it could just hit you randomly and you're like you write it down like man i know this is gonna work when i tell him this you're all hyped up and then they're like oh whatever you know okay it, you know they, they hate it they see right through it and last question this is <laughs> this is the most important one as always your best advice for the 4-0 amateur tennis player yeah maybe practice with a 4-5 or 5-0 <laughs> so, so you, th you you think you think practicing up is a better way than than practicing down? Actually, that's pretty dangerous. Let me not say that. Um, <laughs> I, my, okay, so my <laughs> my philosophy on that, I would say, you know, I like to use the 50, 20, 25, 25 approach, where you know you're playing fifty percent your level, twenty five percent above, and twenty five percent below. 
I love that. So you so you would recommend that for a 4.0? Because I know all my 4.0s, they, they got really excited there for a second. They're like, oh, yeah, great, because we always want to hit with four fives. But <laughs> like, I, I mean, I've heard I, I've never heard the percentage broken down like that. But I'm like, hey, no. like, last time I checked, you play people better the same and worse than you. So you should probably learn how to play people better, worse and the same than you. Right. OK, so 50, 25, 25. Okay. Yeah. Got it. What about one more one more follow up to that? Do you have a you know the coach you were mentioning or whatever? Do you have a tactic or a simple like on court thought that has served you well or served players well that you could share with them? For me as a player, I like to think with my feet. I was more of a mover, and so I felt like if I was moving well, then I could kind of work my way, and I felt confident, and so. A lot of the things that I would do in my head sometimes was just <laughs> kind of just count. You know, I would time my split step and I would time it to, I would count as I'm um, hitting the ball sometimes and just having that um, eyes and mind recognition, just concentration drills. Uh, one thing to this day that I would, I always do is the tempo drill. You know, I do it with a lot of juniors because I think that's something that resonates in any level of the game because I, I, it puts you in that mindset of attacking the ball with your feet. And what I find is when I do it with the juniors the first time around, you know, they'll get to a number. I, I mean, you're familiar with the tempo drill, correct? Yeah, yeah, we, we do it. I'm actually curious too, by the way, what, what's your what's your record with the juniors for the tempo? Is it, you do a minute? Yeah, we do one minute. Um, wow, man. I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I, I'm going to come back to you with that because I'm actually curious because it's due for us to, uh, we need to do it again. Yeah. I had a girl and a guy get 45. I think Allie writ. I can't remember. Allie told me she got 25 in 30 seconds, but I think she said she couldn't keep it up, but I'm curious what, I'm always curious what the other top players can do. Cause I thought 45 for juniors was yeah, pretty good. That's pretty good. Right. So I was like, that was a pretty solid set. And of course, like one of them still upset somehow, cause that's just how tennis players are. But yeah, the tempo drill is a great one. All right, man. Well, look, uh, I know you got to put the kid to bed. I've already kept you four minutes past. I feel really guilty. I want you to be a good <laughs> father. But thanks for uh, thanks for coming on, sharing what you know. Congrats on the win at Billie Jean King Cup, and good luck to you and your juniors moving forward. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on. All right, I want to thank Jermaine for coming on the show today. I love hearing stories about the best players in the world, and I couldn't believe how much time Hisato Osaka worked on her fitness. I'm going to go ahead and assume that 99% of you out there don't have a 3 to 1 ratio of fitness to tennis. I also loved how he said Venus would serve and return in the beginning of practice or like 20 minutes into a practice. It's the most important shot, and it shouldn't be practiced at the end of every day when you're just tired and ready to go home, so you should make both those shots a priority. Try to copy one of the greatest tennis players of all time and work on your serve and return earlier and more often in practice. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.